Howdy doody jiggery pokey all you listeners. So welcome back to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, my own special little bake from the bloody horror-filled oven. So as part of our special 12 Days of Christmas Horrors, I'm releasing our first instance of our classic mini soat set, which is covering black and white movies that, while not massively controversial, or indeed explicit, they did lay the groundwork for future genres and tropes to emerge as part of our recognised pop culture. So today's classic is probably one of the oldest films that I've ever seen, except Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith, which I had to watch in university. It's the 1932 pre-code thriller 13 Women, which both foreshadowed and established one of the first instances of a female ensemble, as well as, dare I say, a very simple slasher template. So before we tackle the movie itself, let's talk about what pre-code actually means. So in the American film industry, films with sound emerged first in 1929, but the well-known motion picture production code, or the Hayes Code as it is popularly known, wasn't introduced and applied properly until 1934. So that means in the interim, many films were produced which weren't bound by the strict regulatory measures that were indicated by the code. The code itself, when enforced, censored all sorts of images which it deemed unacceptable, such as any religious profanity or mockery of the church, any suggestive nudity or sexual perversion, even in silhouette or mentioned in passing, depicting sexual relationships between races, and special provisions were needed for any scene that involved using firearms, depicting any criminal activity such as assault, rape, smuggling, theft, arson, drug use, etc., Even excessive lustful kissing was regulated with a three-second limit on any kiss scene, as well as to particular care not to show criminals in a sympathetic light. Thirteen Women was one of the ones made in this interim which was unfettered by any rules, not unlike the pre-served VHS era, where any video could be released without any censorship regulation from the BBFC up until the Video Recordings Act came into effect to spoil the fun. So now that we know a little bit about the era, let's get on to the plot. A young carnival performer called June receives a letter from her swarmy, indicating that her horoscope has foretold that someone close to her will meet their death. An old friend, Hazel, comes to visit and is immediately alarmed by her friend's concern. Wishing to not perform in the show, June eventually has to relent and she performs with her sister May, only to fail to catch her at the right moment, leading her to fall to her death and June's institution in a mental asylum. The Swami, revealed to be under the influence of the mysterious exotic Ursula, predicts that she will die in a horrific way, mangled near some train tracks. Ursula tears up the real horoscopes that the Swami has predicted and sends her own letters, predicting that Hazel will next go to prison for bloodshed, and crossing out her pictures in a scrapbook of June and May, two of thirteen women that Ursula went to college with. In a bizarre instance of madness, Hazel ends up stabbing her husband to death, and is immediately incarcerated for the crime. 
Laura, at home with her son, calls her old sorority sister Helen and debunks the theory that the Swami's predictions have anything to do with the bizarre events. Grace, a visiting friend, is also afraid that the predictions will come true, but Laura insists that the horoscope shouldn't be believed so much. Grace reveals that the Swami has predicted his own death, and that if his death comes to pass, they will have no choice but to believe the horoscopes. And sure enough, Ursula hypnotises the Swami into falling into the path of the train. Helen, aboard a train herself, reads the news and rereads her letter, which states that she'll meet her death by her own hand. She ends up meeting Ursula on board, who reminds her that they went to school together. While talking, Helen tells her that Laura is sceptical of the horoscopes, and whilst rummaging through her luggage, Helen spots her husband's revolver, and remembering her deceased daughter, commits suicide. Sergeant Clive, who's investigating the death, deduces that something must have caused her to commit the act. Grace and Joe arrive at Laura's for dinner, followed shortly by Sergeant Clive, who informs them of Helen's death. Ursula ends up manipulating Laura's chauffeur, Burns, for info on how to break Laura's scepticism, eventually targeting Laura's son, Bobby. She sends him poisoned candy, only avoided by Laura's paranoia, and Clive now deduces that it's not the Swami who's perpetrating the crimes. Visiting the girls' school, Clive finds out that the girls fell out with a classmate of theirs, Ursula, whose attempt to kill Bobby next is with an explosive rubber ball. Clive recognises a picture of Ursula and discovers her connection with Burns, and his intervention foils the attempt on Bobby after Burns leaps from the car with Laura inside, who disposes of the presents, discovering the rubble but rubber ball exploding. Ursula abandons in Burns and decides to take matters into her own hands, heading to the train station after Laura is told by Clive to leave town. She confronts Laura on board, chastising her for excluding her in school due to her race and lineage. Laura pleads that they were only children before she's hypnotised into slumber by Ursula. Suddenly pursued by Clive, Ursula flees to the end of the train and realises that the Swami's prediction was right. She casts herself off the train, dying as she hits the tracks. Hello? Hello, Helen. Why, Laura Stanhope. It's grand hearing you again. What's up? Oh. Oh, yes. His prediction came true. Oh, but, dear, that's just a coincidence, May going like that and then Hazel. We mustn't believe in it, Helen. I'm going to put a stop to it, do you hear? Listen, Grace Coons lives out here, and Joe Turner is going to stop off on her way back from Hawaii. Helen, you try to come out. Oh, oh I'd love to, Laura, but George has been so wretched since since the baby left us. I don't think I'd... But the trip will do you good. We'll laugh those fool horoscopes right out of our heads. All right. Let me know. Goodbye. Can I mother in my old clothes? Yes, darling. You can climb the apple tree in your own yard. Okay. Oh, hello, Grace. How are you? Come on, sit down. Oh, another one of those messages, Yes. Huh? Grace, if you don't stop selling your soul to the devil by believing in those foolish horoscopes... What about May? And Hazel is in jail. It's pitiful, yes. But the result of natural causes. 
And belief in anything else is believing in magic. But, Laura... And you could help the rest of us. Grace, if you'd hush and stop writing your letters, telling us all to prepare for our... But the moon does control the tides. And nothing can live without the sun. Why shouldn't we be controlled? Because we're reasoning human beings, silly, and not irresponsible machines. Listen, Laura. This letter came from the Swami just an hour ago. I have to tell you. Listen. Based on the 1930 novel of the same name, written by Tiffany Thayer, 13 Women is a 1932 thriller film that centres around a circle of friends who are being manipulated via suggestion and hysteria to kill themselves or each other, in retribution for snubbing a mysterious exotic woman entirely for her race. It's one of the first films to have such a prominent female cast, and in terms of the setup, it also paves the way for future revenge films and the slasher film idea of a body count too. The novel was adapted by Samuel Ortiz and Bartlett Cormack, of which Ortiz had worked on the scripts to Little Orphan Annie and Miracle on Main Street, while Cormack went on to adapt the script for the historical film Cleopatra in 1934. For the era, the film is packed with rather controversial images for the time, such as the frequency of deaths, the attempted murder of a child, uh, rather sexualised portrayals of women, and an almost unheard of affair between Ursula, who is defined thoughtlessly as half-caste and Hindu in the film, and Burns, who is Caucasian. The film is certainly distanced from a modern audience in terms of era, and also due to its relative inexplicitness, but it does resonate some of its themes with modern America, Race is still clearly a problem in the USA even today, with frequent protests over shootings of black suspects and misapplications of the law when it comes to African-American citizens who are on trial. In the film itself, however, it just shows how hypocritical the entire process of racism is. The 12 girls who shun Ursula do so because of her race and supposed class, Yet they're entirely bought into the notion of horoscopes and mysticism, elements that are clearly not based in American history and are more from Ursula's world of spirituality. The fact that Ursula then uses these methods to enact her revenge is nothing less than poetic. But I am a little unsure whether her supposed hypnotic powers are just so powerful that they can compel people to commit such unlawful acts, or whether the film is just suggesting that women are just that mentally unbalanced. There is certainly a hysterical nature to the events that happen in the film, only broken really by Ursula's direct route to get revenge on Laura, which is by trying to murder her child Bobby. Up until that point, while aggrieved that bad things were happening to the girls, I wasn't moved by any sort of maliciousness on Ursula's part. While her actions are clearly juvenile and not in good taste, it's hard to admit that the women seem so suggestible that it kind of seems like it's their own fault. I'm reminded of Laura's statement to Grace. We're thinking human beings, not foolish machines driven by stars and heavenly movements. It's unfortunate, but the female characters here, while some stronger than others, seem just completely compelled by chance to either stab people or mistakenly kill their sibling. Having said that, the film's actually not too bad overall, and it has some quite exciting sequences for such an early film. The opening trapeze act is pretty tense, as is a car chase later when Laura discovers her child's present is booby-trapped. There's even a scene where Bobby excitedly tries to get the explosive present from a high shelf, which is pretty nail-biting. Clocking in at a little under an hour, the film is also quite a brief sojourn into what is essentially a psychological thriller. 
It's a little talky and not particularly explicit, but it is an interesting relic from a bygone era that functions as the cornerstone of the more commonly recognised slasher template that we'd get in the early 70s. Director Georges Augenbaugh was born in France and he emigrated to the US in 1915, where he gained a job as an assistant director. He made almost 150 pictures over the course of his life, including Some Like It Hot, One Week of Love and The Common Law. Most of his pictures, though, won't have been seen by many people today other than classic connoisseurs. Pittsburgh-born producer David Oselznik was the son of a silent movie producer and he'd worked on several famous pictures as an executive producer after 13 Women, namely the 1933 version of King Kong and the most commercially successful film of all time, Gone with the Wind, after adjusting for inflation, of course. Three-time Oscar winner Max Steiner composed the music for 13 Women way before his biggest successes on Casablanca and Gone with the Wind. On a thematic note, the piece of music that's featured during 13 Women's train sequence would be reused on 1933's King Kong, also during a train shot. Cinematographer Leo Tover would later be used in 1949's The Heiress and the memorable sci-fi classic The Day the Earth Stood Still. Laura was played by actress Irene Dunn, five-time nominee for Academy Awards and star of Theodora Goes Wild and The Awful Truth, while the exotic Ursula was played by Myrna Loy, who was frequently typecast as Asian or seductive vampiric roles. It was only after her performance in 1934's The Thin Man that she began to get some more serious roles. The real tragic part of 13 Women, however, is the story of Peg Entwistle, who played Hazel, she was a Welsh actress from Port Talbot who came to America around the early 1910s to pursue a career in acting. After several successful shows in the theatre, famously expiring actress Betty Davis to pursue acting herself, Entwistle's theatre career came to an end when an alcoholic co-star, Lorette Taylor, frequently missed shows, leading to the entire run being cancelled and Entwistle only being paid a measly sum as a result. At the height of the Great Depression in the early 30s, she found the role in 13 Women, her first and only film appearance. Upon its release in 1932, Entwistle was dismayed to learn that her significant screen time was cut down to a measly four minutes in a bold scissoring of content perpetrated by the distributor after test audiences reportedly disliked some of the scenes. Not only that, but the shortened version was also not very well received, critically or commercially. And just two days after the film premiered, Entwistle committed suicide by flinging herself off the large H on the Hollywood sign, leaving a suicide note behind indicating that she was sorry for everything, presumably despondent at the reaction of her first film. As mentioned before, the film was not received well by either the critics or the box office, and after poor test screenings, the distributor removed a whopping 14 minutes from the original 73-minute version, leaving the remainder a mere 59 minutes long. Most of Peg Entwistle's scenes were gone, and two of the other women, played by Phyllis Frazier and Betty Finesse, were removed entirely, making the film feature only 11 women rather than the intended 13. The film's, the film's reputation was such that actress Zita Johan from the studio's version of The Mummy wished to distance herself from the unsavoury aspects of the film and successfully released herself from her contract. The film has long been unavailable due to its age and the 73-minute version is now considered lost forever. 
The 59-minute version, though, is now available from Warner Brothers on their DVD archive collection. And that was 13 Women, and it's the end of this mini-sode. So join us very shortly for some more festive treats in the run-up to Christmas as we approach the end of our 12 Days of Christmas Horrors. Good night! (laughs) 